Welcome to the 288th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Brad Schreiber, author of the book Music is Power, Popular Songs, Social Justice, and the Will to Change. Stay tuned for the interview. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Brad Schreiber, author of Music is Power, Popular Music, Social Justice, and the Will to Change. Schreiber is the author of many books, including Becoming Jimi Hendrix, which was chosen for inclusion in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Library. Brad, welcome to the podcast. Well, how are you? It's nice to talk with you. I'm great. So can you tell me what led you to write your new book, Music is Power? Yes, I had been thinking quite a while about my favorite songs um, that were sociopolitical. I don't call them protest songs because too many people associate that term with the 60s and Bob Dylan and Phil Oaks and Joan Baez. And I wanted to write a book that says throughout U.S. history, dating back to the early 19-teens and the Union songs, there have always been sociopolitical songs and in every genre from Broadway shows, through hip-hop, through comedy recordings of the Smothers Brothers and Tom Lehrer. So I wanted to show people, especially now, because so many things are very contentious and troubling right now, that uh, there is a source of comfort in listening throughout history, the musical history, to socio-political songs. And also I wanted Jeff to encourage artists who might have one or two really interesting socio-political songs in them, to do them now. Now is the time. So that kind of leads me to my next question. Do you think that musical artists today are writing socio-political songs now in the same way that musicians in earlier eras of social unrest were writing those songs? Well, in the same way, you'd have to define that. I think that music is distributed completely differently today. And it's easier to record yourself and get your music out into the world today than it was when there was only radio play and, and LPs primarily. Uh, the, there is a good question as to whether there is more socio-political songs today, and so many people are doing them and going up on Spotify, that we can't possibly follow all of them. But there are more topics to write about today. You know, back in the days when Pete Seeger was singing folk songs, there wasn't um, any songwriter anywhere who was saying, you know, I gotta write a song today about global warming, you know? Or I gotta do something about, you know, police brutality today. I mean, Phil Oaks certainly dealt with it a little bit. But we're going through some fascinating historical changes now. And I think the opportunity is there for more different kinds of songs. So some people might say that socio-political songs don't have a t tangible impact. Can you talk about the real-world impact of one song, Eve of Destruction, by P.F. Sloan? Yes, and in Music is Power, I cite a number of songs that actually changed history. P.F. Sloan's... Um, song which Barry McGuire made popular, Eve of Destruction in the 60s, um, had a line in it said, you're old enough to kill, but not for voting. 
um, it's preceded by a line about what's that gun you're toting. The Eve of Destruction, of course, talked about the Vietnam War, religious hypocrisy, racism, talked about everything. And believe it or not, it started a discussion that led to the 26th Amendment to the Constitution, whereby 18-year-olds who were old enough to be drafted in Vietnam and killed or maimed finally got the right to vote. And that happened, strangely enough, under Richard Nixon. So, as you mentioned earlier, there's a rich history of socio-political songs. What is the history of the songs, like the early Union songs, that some people might not be aware of? Well, you know, Music is Power begins with Joe Hill, um, who has a tragic story of his own, which I detail, in which uh, he was accused of shooting a man who was supposedly in love with the same woman. It wasn't true, but because Joe Hill was a union organizer, um, and he wrote the sweet By and By and other songs, Casey Jones, um, the, the government in Utah, where the crime was committed, um, blackmailed him. And Joe Hill was destined to be executed by firing squad. There was an outcry around the world to try and save the life of Joe Hill the songwriter and union organizer. And while that failed and he did see a firing squad in 1911, his last words were very inspirational. He said to the people who were interviewing him before he faced the firing squad, don't mourn, organize. Typically brave and wise words from a guy whose life was committed to gaining rights for workers. So some musicians have dismissed rap music in the past. Your book includes a chapter on N.W.A. and Public Enemy specifically. N.W.A. addressed police brutality 32 years before the recent public murder of George Floyd. What was the the reception to N.W.A. and Public Enemy in the 80s, if people listening don't remember? Well, you know... N.W.A. wrote a song that started with the word F that had four letters, and it was F the police. I'm trying to save you any trouble here, Jeff, in case the FCC are (laughs) listening to your show. And um, while it was not very graceful or artful, it was a reflection of um, police um, profiling blacks in South Central Los Angeles. And what happened is the police, when, they, when the uh, group went on tour, the police in each city on tour would fax, that's how long ago it was, they would fax the next city and say, you better watch out because these guys are singing about you know, getting even with the police. Um, one show actually completely collapsed. There was the sound of perhaps a firecracker that people thought was gunfire. Um, the label was threatened the uh, record label for NWA was threatened by the FBI and the head of the label went public with it. And then um, members of Congress said, why is the FBI telling a music group, which has its own rights of free expression, what they can say and what they can't say on a record? Um, I think that public enemy was a bit more um, crafty in the way they wrote songs. I'm really moved by the story of 9-11 as a joke, 9-1-1 as a joke, um, which came out of uh, the member Flavor Flav um, having a friend stabbed 
um, in the streets of New York City, and instead of having you know paramedics arrive in two or three minutes, it was 20 minutes later because it was a bad section of the city, and his friend was dead, and it led him to write 911 as a joke and talk about the disparity in response rates for 9-11 between certain neighborhoods. John Oliver, who has a comedy show on HBO, I think a brilliant show, funny and also very topical, did a show about 9-11 just a couple of years ago. And he says that the system is very antiquated and still very far behind in its response. And this is many years after Public Enemy wrote 911 as a joke. And Public Enemy also uh, wrote about uh, the Martin Luther King holiday, correct? Um, and specifically around Arizona. Yes. Um, yeah, governor Meacham, I believe his, his name was, was the only governor in the United States who didn't want to give Martin Luther King Jr. a national holiday. And um, they got into a bit of trouble because not only did they attack uh, Meacham, they showed in the music video a cut of Meacham. Supposedly, they cut away and they showed the figure that seemed to be Meacham getting into a car, and then the car blows up. Well, you can imagine <laughs> Public Enemy had uh, had their own enemies after that. But um, they were right in criticizing the inherent racism of Arizona. Inevitably, Martin Luther King did get that holiday. A weird sort of appendix to that or addendum to that Jeff is the fact that James Brown soul brother number one the guy who invented funk music was the first one who tried to get an MLK Jr. holiday by visiting with Richard Nixon Nixon was very devious he thought I'm not going to give Martin Luther King Jr. a holiday but yes I'll meet with James Brown because he has millions of fans and maybe I will siphon off some of the black vote by being seen with Brown. So when they had their photos taken, tragically, uh, James Brown's fans, a lot of them deserted him because they were, you know, resentful about Richard Nixon and what he stood for. And that was the beginning of the downward slide of James Brown in terms of his popularity. And of course, then there was drugs and other, you know, offenses that were charged against him. It was Stevie Wonder who managed to get a national tour that included yet another wonderful, wonderful writer who I talk about in Music is Power, Gil Scott Heron, who wrote The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. Gil Scott Heron was on Stevie Wonder's tour to celebrate Martin Luther King, who inevitably got his holiday that he well deserved. Sure. Well, for my 12-year-old son, who's a huge Pink Floyd fan, I have to ask you oh, about great. Pink Floyd. Uh, what is Pink Floyd's importance in terms of sociopolitical songs? Pink Floyd, and I'm so glad that he appreciates them, because I fell in love with their music at, at a relatively early age. When I was 14, I, I saw them on the PBS affiliate in San Francisco, KQED, doing a live show that was mixed with effects in the studio. And uh, it was just transporting. Pink Floyd is one of the few groups in the history of pop or rock music or really music of any genre that consistently address the idea of madness 
and alienation and mental illness. And of course, the reason they did so is the founder of Pink Floyd was Sid Barrett, who became a victim of taking way too much LSD. Nobody knows whether he was um, technically schizophrenic. There was never any actual medical diagnosis. But if it was inherent in poor Sid, it was brought on by way too much LSD. And the irony is he used to write very light and almost fairy tale like pop songs. And when Sid lost his, his way, it was Waters and Gilmore and the rest of the band that started writing beautiful, aching songs. You know, Wish You Were Here. And, you know, even The Wall is, is not only about war, but it's about alienation and separation. And the irony is that Pink Floyd has the greatest body of music about mental illness, and it's inspired by the leader who had to leave them. Sure. Well, often often when a musician writes a song that becomes super popular and the song explores or addresses societal issues, sometimes people look to those musicians as someone who has answers to complex issues, and that ends up pressuring them and can impact their music. Do you think that happened to an extent with Dylan and Hendrix? Um, it happened certainly more to Bob Dylan. Uh, you know, he was placed in uh, a unique historical position. If you look at, you know, Don't Look Back uh, by D.A. Pennebaker, the documentary about Dylan going to London and, and other sites in the U.K. to perform in like 65, you see the press firing questions at him. Like, who, you know, do you think you're some kind of messiah? And how would you solve this problem and that problem? And Dylan at first is trying to be charming and, and brush off the questions. And finally, he sees they're not going to stop and he loses it a little bit. And he looks bitterly at the British press and he says, Hey, did you ask the Beatles these questions? <laughs> he doesn't <laughs> want to be the pop messiah. He was writing brilliant songs that were unlike anything that had been done. Even Peter, Paul, and Mary, who had a lifetime commitment to sociopolitical music, they licensed Dylan. They didn't write those songs, generally. So then you have Dylan and his motorcycle accident, his shift from writing overtly political to more personal songs that, of course, still addressed you know, issues about human relationships. But they, he certainly wasn't going to write Masters of War anymore. And as an artist, he was entitled to grow. But there was incredible pressure on him, and perhaps unlike anything in the history of popular music. Now, Jimmy, as you mentioned, I proudly wrote a book called Becoming Jimi Hendrix about his early years. He was sly in the way he talked about sociopolitical stuff. He talked about it in terms of spirit and love. Many people said, you know, you should write about Vietnam. Well, they, I guess, forgot that he had been drafted in the Army. And he was, he was actually a paratrooper, 101st Airborne Division in Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And even though he was against the war in Vietnam, he felt a kinship with those soldiers, many of whom, many of whom back in the day, of course, had been forced to be in the military. So he would write songs about love and peace, and all people connecting to one another, people waking up, he would use that kind of symbology. 
but he never would have written an anti-Vietnam War song based on his own history. Well, over the years, Bruce Springsteen is someone who's written a lot of socio-political songs. And, and also it, it... You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. It goes around pretty routinely on social media and other places online where you have these kind of memes where um, Springsteen fans will say, I love his music, but I don't want to hear about his politics. Um, that just seems so dissonant to me if you know anything or, or read any interviews with him. Um, and I just wonder what you think about that. Fans who uh, ostensibly want to hear the music, but don't want to mm -hmm. hear um, socio-political songs. Well, yeah, that is an issue, Jeff. Also, especially with Bruce, as I mentioned in Music is Power, there's, there's an issue with misinterpreting his songs. Ronald Reagan famously took Born in the USA as a refrain to, to use in his campaign, without permission, by the way. And Bruce Springsteen not only did not politically see eye to eye with Ronald Reagan, he let him know, you, you don't understand what this song is about. Yes, there's a refrain, Born in the USA, but it's about a Vietnam War veteran coming back and not being accepted and feeling alienated from society. I don't think Bruce really wrote, like Dylan, tons of political songs. But you, you could see in how he presented himself as a musician, he was very, very dedicated to a lot of causes. I personally have a friend named Rob Sullivan who wrote um, a play about the steelworkers in uh, California, here in Southern California. And the play was about how in the 40s they were at the apex of society in terms of, you know, contributing and how business was shipped away and steel work 
um, went downhill. And Bruce Springsteen personally got involved and gave money and gave voice to a documentary, to this whole movement to acknowledge the steel workers who couldn't make a living. And that's just one episode of many in which Bruce has been socially conscious. So that's a long way of trying to answer your question, which is to say, you know, in wrapping that up, if an artist wants to talk about politics, as long as he's still writing the love songs and the personal relationship songs, why begrudge him that he or she cares really deeply about a couple of topics? Most of the songs ever written, Jeff, are about hearts being broken or, or somebody being all excited by another person. Um, so there's plenty of room for other topics, in my opinion. Sure. Well, in your book, you write about the Dixie Chicks, who, by the way, have now changed their name to the Chicks, dropping the, chicks, the, word, right. <laughs> dropping the word Dixie. For those mm-hmm. listening who don't remember, can you recap why the Chicks were so reviled? They were reviled, Jeff. For the strangest of reasons, it wasn't even what they sang. It was what Natalie Maines said when the group was performing 10 days before the invasion of Iraq in 2003. And she said to a British crowd in a large arena, we all just want you to know that we're ashamed that the President of the United States comes from Texas, which, of course, George W. Bush did. Well, the the crowd in the UK roared in approval and one needs to remember that in 2003 90% 90% of the British public was against uh, the invasion and occupation of Iraq because they didn't believe there were weapons of mass destruction Uh, that issue was not quite the same in the United States and the Dixie Chicks especially because of what Natalie Maine said, found that when they came back from their tour, the record label, the country music fans, and most especially country radio was condemning them and calling them traitors. Interestingly enough, by the time Green Day, less than three years later, is uh, doing American Idiot and talking about you know, how bad a president George W. Bush was and what a disaster the Iraq war was. Nobody condemned the nobody condemned Green Day because history had actually changed and people began to see that um, we were mired. There were no weapons of mass destruction. So the Dixie Chicks spoke out at a time when they weren't supposed to speak out. But, you know, that's that's what political consciousness is about. You don't wait until it's comfortable. You speak out when you need to speak out. And for that reason, I think, I'm glad they're back. They broke up for a while. And I think for that reason, they still feel the pain of how their followers deserted them when Natalie Maines spoke out in London. Sure. Well, you write that War Pigs by Black Sabbath was the first heavy metal song that addressed politics. Given the aggression of the music, it's surprising that that was the first heavy metal song that did address politics. Oh, I agree completely, Jeff. I'm still amazed to this day that there isn't more politically conscious heavy metal because of the sound. It's so perfect um, for that kind of angry sort of song. Uh, War Picks is kind of funny, uh, you know, Black Sabbath was actually performing in Switzerland early in their career. 
and they saw a bunch of American GIs, at, and they were telling them horror stories about Vietnam. So they said, well, let's do, let's do something socially conscious. But then they fell into that heavy metal trap of wanting to write a song about Satanism. And they wanted to do one about a, a holiday, a supposedly um, a dark satanic holiday called Walpurgis. And the label said, uh, no, you're not going to be doing a song called Walpurgis. <laughs> and apparently Tommy Iommi from the band went, oh, wait a minute, Walpurgis? It sounds like war pigs. Yeah, let's do a song called War Pigs. We talk about the military. Yeah. So that's what they did. And actually, it was brilliant because never before or after that I know of in the history of pop music has a band equated Satanism, not with 16-year-old kids who listen to heavy metal, but with the military. Equating the generals with those at black masses. And what a brilliant stroke that was. Um, I think that hip-hop or rap music is much more political than heavy metal, and I don't see any reason for it. I see, I see heavy metal as, as being a, a great vehicle to talk about issues that make people angry. So you write about Frank Zappa in your book. How does Zappa mm -hmm. fit into a discussion of socio-political songs? Well, Frank Zappa is very close to my heart because I knew him. And I worked with him for six months on a music and comedy show we were trying to get done called Night School. So I got to know him pretty well. And it was also at the time when the Parents Music Resource Center, a Washington, D.C. lobbyist group made of uh, D.C. politicians' wives, um, was trying to put uh, record record stickers, you know, warning stickers, and censor photos on albums. And Zappa spent, well, here we are in 2020, he spent the equivalent of $160,000 of his own money to do interviews and to make people aware, not only of the wrongness of the PMRC, but also the fact that there was a, a Senate bill 2811, which was going to impose a tax on blank tape because the, the record industry was afraid that people would buy blank tape and record albums and give them to their friends and all of a sudden business would go downhill. And thanks to Zappa, not only was the PMRC defeated, but HR, um, I guess it was HR, House Resolution, not Senate Bill 2811, was defeated. Um, you know, he and John Denver spoke famously in Washington. You can see the testimony on YouTube. And that's just part of Zappa's commitment to all kinds of topics. I mean, he, he, didn't, he took on anybody. He took on his own fans if he thought that they were being stupid. He took on the hippies because he, he believed that people should be socially conscious and they shouldn't uh, lose themselves in drugs. A guy who wrote some of the most bizarre pop music in history never did drugs and was really annoyed by the, you know, hippie movement. So that's just a, an inkling of some of the incredible work that Zappa did on behalf of social issues. So if you had to list your top three or four sociopolitical oh. songs, what would oh, they be? Oh, no. No, Jeff, don't do it. Don't do it. 
You know what? I, I've been asked this before, and my reaction was the same. It's like, oh, my God, you always leave out something that somebody wanted to hear. I've done a number of interviews where callers say, hey, why didn't you include this song? And I go, oh, that's a great song. You know, <laughs> I chose certain groups and certain genres. I will say this. Some of the most influential songs came out of the civil rights movement. And back to Pete Seeger, who was hearing black civil rights um, leaders and followers at the Highlander Folk School in Tennessee singing a song about overcoming. And what he did was, as you can probably tell, he you know changed it a bit, adapted it, added lyrics, and wrote We Shall Overcome which was one of the main songs in the civil rights movement. And it was so influential that Lyndon Baines Johnson, when he was on TV and talking about the civil rights act that he got passed in 65, at the end of his speech, he said that the nation needed to be bound together. And then he said, and we shall overcome, which was astounding. A guy who came from Texas, which was then, as somewhat now, a fairly Republican state, um, using a song that basically was sung by civil rights marchers in a presidential speech. So, you know, We Shall Overcome is one of those songs that that really resonated um, in a very crucial time in U.S. history. So do you have plans yet for your next book? Yeah, as a matter of fact, Jeff, I'm doing something a little different. I'm working on a memoir. When I was in my teens and early 20s, I lived in a beautiful town in Northern California called Burlingame. It's just south of San Francisco by a half hour. And I lived in a huge old mansion, former mansion, mayor's mansion, that that was turned into a boarding house, which I managed. And I lived with about 30 people over the course of three and a half years. And I was going to college for the first time. I formed a comedy group. Um, Watergate was going on. My first girlfriend. The house was haunted. The phone line was tapped because people were dealing drugs without my knowledge. It was just a completely amazing time. So I'm about a third of the way through that memoir and um, I'm spending August going back to finish that memoir about my life in Burlingame. So are you trying to track down any of those people who lived at the house? Already did. And, <laughs> and amazingly, some of those people had great memories. Uh, they gave me great details. One fellow, Carlos, he remembered that... Um, They had marijuana plants that were growing outside, and the landlady was going to come to collect the rent. So some of these kids said, oh, we better hide these because Brad will get angry if we have marijuana plants and we're all thrown out of the house. So they went to a space in the attic where they wanted to stash them, hide them. And one person accidentally put his foot through the roof of the house. (laughs) So when the landlady came to collect the rent, she said, what happened here? Here. And I said, oh, well, gee, I guess there was water leakage or something. Yeah, we'll have to fix that. And that was kind of what it was like to live with some of those people, people I had to sometimes throw out of the house for bad behavior, while becoming a young man myself and trying to 
survive on my own. It was a very heady and unusual time. But I think um, I think young people today will be able to relate to a lot of the things in the book. The need to be free of your parents, and at the same time not having the ability to make a living, it's something that's fairly universal for young people. That sounds like a fun book. Thank you. So where can people find you online to learn more about you and your books? Oh, my God, I'm all over the place. Hey, listen, I, I just updated my website, bradschreiber.com. For those of you who don't know how to spell Schreiber, I made it also uh, brashcyber.com. So either one of those will get you to my website. There's lots of video and audio. I'm on Facebook and Twitter, and I have an author's page at Amazon and LinkedIn and all that stupid stuff. But I would direct people to the website because um, I'm constantly adding new writing, and you'll see some video of TV stuff I've done and some unusual audio of interviews that I've enjoyed doing, like this one, Jeff. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Brad Schreiber, author of Music is Power, Popular Music, Social Justice, and the Will to Change. Go buy a copy of the book now. And Brad, thanks for doing this interview. It was great. Thank you very much for your time, Jeff. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. Listen to audiobooks during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. Reading and Writing Podcast Special Offer. Get two audiobooks for the price of one with your first month of membership with code RWPODCAST. That's code RWPODCAST for two audiobooks for the price of one for your first month of membership at Libro.fm. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.